What does the Bible say about relationships within the church? It's the Cross Culture Q&A question. The answer right after this week's Crosswalk. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Can you see God's grace for three and a half years, these two witnesses faithfully proclaiming and apparently getting national attention, worldwide attention. For a long time, that was a hard thing for people to understand. Then along came something called CNN. The two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. For 2,000 years, men have speculated as to who they are. Is it possible to know for certain? And is there something that's more important than knowing who they are? The two witnesses will bring God's prophecy, use God's power, and accomplish God's purpose. That's what God deemed important for you and I to know. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to this week's Crosswalk. Today, we come to the halfway point of the book of Revelation, chapter 11. The first 14 verses of the chapter are the account of God's two witnesses that He is going to send to proclaim His message during the time of the Great Tribulation. For people to repent and turn to God and trust in Him with our lives, to follow His path and not our own, to turn from our sin, to acknowledge our sin, to walk away from our sin, it's not hard to figure out what their message was for three and a half years. What they have to say is very important to those who will be living on the earth at that time and who have not yet made up their minds as to whether they are going to follow God or the Antichrist. Now let's open God's Word as Pastor Clay brings us today's message from Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. I want to believe that you are coming to this study because you're recognizing the significance of this prophetic book for your life and for the lives of those around us. I hope and I pray every week that you are learning more as a result of this study. But quite frankly, and more importantly, I hope you care more as a result of this study. I know it's a lot to take in. I know, I, I know at, at times, again, in my own study, it, it's almost like trying to drink water from a fire hose. You know, you can do it, but you're pretty sure you're not capturing it all. You know, today we come to what is technically the halfway point in the book of Revelation. And so technically it's the halfway point in our study, Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11 is considered by uh, many biblical scholars to be the most difficult chapter in all of the book of Revelation to interpret. And there are a lot of different interpretations of some of what we'll find in Revelation chapter 11. There there are some different interpretations by many solid, conservative, biblical scholars and and commentators. There's variances even within them, those that are are considered, those who hold to the the biblical fidelity, the the accuracy of the text. There's a variety of, of some interpretations of some of what we'll see. And you'll hear some of that this morning, I know that a lot of it is, is, is a lot. And I told Pastor BJ in a, some, some email this week that much of this part, at least, of Revelation chapter 11 is really almost more informational than it is inspirational. But I hope that you nevertheless feel like it's important and that you're glad that you came and had an opportunity to study this passage of Scripture this morning. Revelation chapter 11, if you have your Bible open there, 
And I can tell you that the text will also be on the screen as well. Revelation chapter 11. This morning we're going verses 1 through 14. Then there was given me a measuring rod, like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which, is, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up and to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. This vision that John has keeps going. Now, as this vision continues, Revelation chapter 11, the first thing we see that John is giving, given this rod, like a, a staff or a stick, he's told to measure. Given this, this measuring rod, as I understand it, it was about 10 feet, a measuring rod that they would use for that time, about 10 feet long. And John is given this rod and he's told to measure the temple and the altar and those within it, meaning simply meaning count the number of people who are within it and measure the temple and the altar. Now, that's interesting because John wrote the book of Revelation uh, somewhere thereabouts 90 to 95 A.D. We know historically that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman general Titus in 70 A.D. when he sieged and then destroyed the city of Jerusalem. So the temple has been destroyed for roughly at least about 20 years as John is penning this. So John must be seeing in this vision 
a temple that is yet to come, a temple that is yet future, that has not yet been constructed. Well, it's been 2,000 years since John penned these words, and there has never been another temple constructed in Jerusalem. And if you know anything about the politics of the Middle East, you know how absolutely insane the idea of a temple being built there would, would sound. Because I, I, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but the place that is considered by the Jews as what they call Temple Mount, the place that is believed to be Mount Moriah, where Abraham was willing to, to offer up even his son Isaac if he needed, as, as God asked him to, as a test of his faith. The place where years later Solomon built the first temple that was erected, this grand and glorious temple. That site is today in the city of Jerusalem controlled by Muslims. Because in the 7th century AD, 691, 692, somewhere right in that area, the Muslims built what we know today as the Dome of the Rock. It's probably one of the most recognizable sites in all of the world. It seems like it's almost nightly on the news. And it sits right on top of Temple Mount. It sits right on top of the spot where the Jews' temple was originally constructed. So the idea of the Jews building a temple there now seems crazy because I'm pretty sure the Muslims aren't just going to give up that spot and let the Jews build their temple there. If you caught the news lately, there's not a lot of good blood between those two. Well, okay, why don't they just build it somewhere else? Why don't the Jews just move over a couple hundred yards, build it somewhere else? Doesn't work that way. All right? I don't know if any of you, if you grew up in a church tradition, maybe in a, if you have a church background, some of you don't, some of you do. If you, if you have some type of church background, perhaps you've been in a church sometime, maybe a business meeting or something like that, or maybe you've heard of a, a church business meeting where, where things can sometimes get a little heated or something like that. And perhaps you've heard of someone who stands up and says, this is my church. We'll multiply that by a million and you might begin to have some sense of the feeling that both Jews and Muslims have over this one little spot in Jerusalem. No, there's, there's no moving it over. So it would seem impossible for the Jews to build another temple. And yet, we know that there are a number of Jewish organizations who are planning on doing just that. We know that for years there have been several uh, Jewish organizations and even Christian organizations contributing to it who have been gathering supplies and making plans to rebuild the temple on Temple Mount. I read an article recently that said that hundreds of millions of dollars, they don't know exact figure because, you know, not everybody wants to talk about this, I guess, hundreds of millions of dollars have already been raised from Jews all around the world for the purposes of rebuilding the temple. So the temple, the Jews plan on rebuilding the temple. We know that it's going to be rebuilt based on this passage in Revelation chapter 11, that it must be rebuilt 
during the tribulation period. That it's during the tribulation period that this temple is built. And in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, he's told to measure this this thing. And then in verse 2, it says, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. And here's the reason he's given why. For it has been given to the nations and they will tread under the foot the holy city for 42 months. 42 months or three and a half years. 42 months of 30 days equals three and a half years. John is told, measure the temple, measure the altar, measure the people in it, but don't measure outside of it, what, what was known to the Jews, what is known to the Jews as the court of the Gentiles. It was an area outside where those who perhaps uh, believed in, in, their, in Jehovah God or the, that, but were not of Jewish heritage, they could come up, they could hang around the temple, but they couldn't. There was a wall, from what I understand, about a five-foot-high wall that beyond that point, no Gentile could pass. And if he did, he was dead. He, he would be killed. John's told not to measure the part outside of the temple. And the reason he's told not not to measure that part outside is because that part is where the Gentiles are and and they are going to tread underfoot the holy city, reference to Jerusalem, for 42 months. So basically, I believe what God is saying to John and to us is, I'll deal with the Gentiles, but right now I'm dealing with Israel. Don't measure where the Gentiles are going to tread. Don't measure. We know what they're going to do in the tribulation period. Don't, don't measure. Don't, that's, don't worry about that. Symbolically, what God is saying by telling John to measure it is that he's getting ready to deal with the nation of Israel. Now, if you've been with us in this study, you may remember that I said that the further we got into the book of Revelation, the more prominent the nation of Israel would become. God, I believe, is saying, I, I'll take care of the Gentiles, Right now, I'm dealing with the nation of Israel. And so, what follows then is this description of these two witnesses in verse 3 and following, this description of these two witnesses that will will come on the scene. Now, what I want to do today in in this time is basically deal with three questions related to these two witnesses. And the three questions are this. When will the two witnesses prophesy? Who are the two witnesses? And what will the two witnesses do? Those are the three questions that we're going to deal with. Now, let me say this. The first two questions, nobody, I don't care who it is, nobody can say for absolute certainty the answer to those questions. It is debated, it is discussed, we'll look at some of them, but, but nobody can say absolutely, emphatically, dogmatically that this is the answer to these two questions. The third question, though, we can answer dogmatically, and the third question is the one that I believe is the most important. However, for some reason, the first two questions always get a lot of buzz. The first two questions, people always want to know the answer. Okay, when, are they, when, when is this going to happen? When are they going to uh, prophesy? And who are those guys? Who are those two witnesses. So, because there is always interest in that, we will deal with those two questions. The first question is, when will the two witnesses prophesy? When, when, when will this all uh, take place? Well, we already know how long they're going to prophesy, because verse 3 says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. 
surprise, surprise, three and a half years. 1260 days is three and a half years. The exact same amount of time that he just said the Gentiles will tread on or will overrun and will wreak havoc and whatever all they will do in the city of Jerusalem for three and a half years. He, he just announces now that he will grant authority to his two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1260 days. So we already know how long they prophesy, three and a half years. We already know that they prophesy in the tribulation period. That's pretty clear from the, from the text and where we are in this. Some of you, again, may remember in our study a number of weeks or, or months back, we, we spent a significant amount of time one day in the book of Daniel, and particularly in Daniel chapter 9, showing the correlation between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. One of the things that the book of Daniel teaches us is that the Antichrist will sign a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. I believe that peace treaty will be signed quite quickly, fairly quickly at least, after the rapture or the snatching out of the church takes place. I believe at that point Israel will sign a peace treaty, and I think there's, there's obvious reasons for that. Millions of Christians will suddenly disappear from the earth. Christians are probably the strongest supporters, evangelical Christians are probably the strongest supporters of Israel that that nation has. They'll suddenly be gone. Israel may feel the tension Uh, may feel the fear, for whatever reason, they're going to sign this peace treaty. That will mark the beginning of the tribulation period. This is old news to you if you've been with us. Daniel 9 also tells us that three and a half years into that treaty and three and a half years into the tribulation period, the Antichrist will break that treaty and rise up against the nation of Israel. So, we know how long they prophesy, these two witnesses, three and a half years. We know that they will prophesy in the tribulation period. The question is, will they prophesy in the first half of the tribulation period, or will they prophesy in the second half of the tribulation period? Again, uh, th- there, are, there are good, solid biblical interpreters on both sides in, in, this, in this position, first half, second half, uh, that have arguments for both of those. No one can say absolutely conclusively When it will be, I come down on the side that the two witnesses will prophesy during the latter half of the tribulation period. I believe that the two witnesses will come on the scene in the second half of the tribulation period. Now, just real quickly, uh, you may not even care, but I base that, I come to that conclusion based on the close correlation between the time that the Gentiles tread as, as the text puts it, to tread on the holy city and the amount of time that the witnesses will be prophesying. Both of them are for three and a half years. Both of them are mentioned right together in verse 2 and in verse 3, directly one right after the other. We know that the, that the, tread, that the Gentiles will tread on the city of Jerusalem for the latter half of the tribulation period. We know that's the latter half of the tribulation period. So it seems probable to me that since there seems to be a, a textual connection between the two witnesses' time frame and the Gentiles' time frame, it seemed probable to me that they will occur at the same time. I'm sure you're thoroughly confused after that explanation, but go back and listen to it uh, online and uh, several times and maybe it'll clear it up. But basically, I believe there's a connection between the, the, when the Gentiles tread on Jerusalem and when the two witnesses will prophesy. So I think it'll take place in the second half of the tribulation period. Now, The second question is a bit trickier. The second question is this. Who are the two witnesses? This is a little bit trickier. And again, there are several answers that have been offered up 
as to the answer to these two witnesses, who they are. Let's look at a few of them. First one is Enoch and Elijah. If, you have a, if you've studied the Bible before, then, then these names may sound familiar to you. If you've never studied the Bible much, then these names may not mean anything to you. But these are two Old Testament characters. Uh, this was probably the most prominent view of the early church fathers um, the, in the early days of the church, after Jesus went back to heaven and, and after the apostles passed from the scene, what are called the church fathers. Uh, most of them, as I've, in my reading, seem to have held to this idea that it was Enoch Elijah. The argument, the rationale for that position goes like this. Enoch and Elijah and Elijah are the only two Old Testament characters that never what? Died. They never died. We know from Scripture that both of them were taken up out of the earth, taken from, from here, before they died. The argument is, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, that it is appointed unto man once to die... And after that, the judgment. And so, if it's appointed unto every man to die once, well, then Enoch and Elijah must have to come back to earth. They're going to be the two witnesses. They're going to prophesy for three and a half years. They're going to be killed. Therefore, fulfilling Hebrews 9, 27, and, and that, that it's appointed a man to die once, and that makes perfect sense, and that's who it is, Enoch and Elijah. The problem with that position is that we know that there is going to be an entire generation of people, an entire generation of believers who are never going to die. When Paul writes about the, the rapture, the snatching up of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verses 16 and 17, he says to them, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, I don't want you to be uninformed about this. He said, for the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. So whenever, whenever you think the rapture is going to take place, you know that I think it'll take place before the tribulation period, but whenever you think it takes place, Paul clearly says that there's an entire group of Christians that will be caught up and will not taste death. So Hebrews chapter 9, still with me? Hebrews chapter 9 can't be a carte blanche declaration that all persons must die one time. No, Hebrews chapter 9 is simply stating the reality of death and the certainty of the judgment to come. That's what Hebrews 9 is saying, is that you're not going to live forever and you are going to stand before God someday. So it, it not, doesn't necessarily have to be said to, to mean, well, there you go. It must mean that every person has to die once. No, we know that's not true. So that's Enoch and Elijah. A second option is Moses and Elijah. And this is probably the most popular position today among those of us who hold to a literal interpretation of Scripture. Probably the most popular one is this, Moses and Elijah. And the people who hold to this position point to the supernatural acts that these people are able to perform, the miracles that they're able to do. They're able to stop up the sky so that it doesn't rain for three and a half years, the exact same amount of time that Elijah did in his ministry when he came against the wicked king Ahab and his even more wicked queen uh, Jezebel. 
For three and a half years, Elijah stopped up the sky so that it would not rain. And here we're told that these two witnesses have the power to stop up the sky for three and a half years so that it won't rain. They also have the ability to turn the waters into blood. Well, who did that? Moses, when he went to Pharaoh in Egypt and said, let my people go. I always like to do it like Charlton Heston. Uh, let, let him go. He, he, he was able to turn the water into blood. And here we find uh, in, in this passage in Revelation 11, these witnesses are able to turn water into blood. Therefore, it must be Moses and Elijah. By the way, also uh, in support of this position, this is not, if, if this is Moses and Elijah, this is not the first time that they've appeared after their death. Can anybody remember another time when they appeared? The Mount of Transfiguration. They appeared with Jesus to discuss with Jesus' upcoming death. And Peter, James, and John, that inner circle I mentioned earlier, are there. And they're like, whoo, there's, there's Moses and Elijah. Let's make a tent. <laughs> we always thought that was weird. <laughs> Build a house. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of support for this position as well. Moses and Elijah have shown up together before. The third position is that the two witnesses are two unknown Jews of that time period. The time period meaning the tribulation period. It's possible that it's not anybody from the past, that it's actually two people that we, we, we don't even know yet who they are, but as the tribulation period, if we get into it, as we get halfway into it, and as all this kicks off, two Jews are, who, are, who are converted to Christianity. By the way, I, I, I didn't say this earlier, and I need to. It, it's almost universally held that the two witnesses are Jewish. Almost everybody holds that the two witnesses are Jewish because of the reference to the temple and the fact that God seems to be dealing with the nation of Israel, and because the two witnesses' ministry, or at least a, a significant part of the ministry, seems to take place in Jerusalem. So it's, it's a, it's a, it, most people concede that the two witnesses are probably Jewish. So it's two uh, Jews who convert to Christianity during the tribulation period, and, and they rise up, and they become God's two witnesses. That's possible as well. Uh, only really kind of slight problem that you might have with this is that uh, in the original language, in the Greek, uh, the Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says that the use of the definite article in relation to these two witnesses, and we'll see that in a minute in verse 4, the use of the definite article implies that they're they're already known, that there's there's somebody that's already been known before. If if, If Robertson is right, then that would probably rule out uh, those. This isn't all of the positions, but these three are the most prominent positions. There are, there are various other ideas. I, the, some of y'all don't even know who this is, but some of you may remember the great old radio uh, preacher and commentator J. Vernon McGee. J. Vernon McGee believed that the, uh, that the two witnesses are uh, John the Baptist and Elijah. So there's lots of different ideas about who it is, although um, those three that I mentioned are the three most popular, of which I don't adhere to any of those three. <laughs> which makes me in the minority, I, I must say this. Now, any of them, let me say, any of them are possibilities, and, and I said this, I've said this before, nobody can say conclusively which it is. But I've come to the conclusion that it is somebody else, although I do like the whole Moses-Elijah connection, and, and, and that's definitely a possibility as far as I'm concerned. But I've come to a different conclusion. I believe that the two witnesses are Joshua and Zerubbabel. Who? (laughs) What? Who? Joshua and Zerubbabel. 
too relatively obscure to us, two relatively obscure Old Testament characters. Not Joshua that conquered the promised land. Not Joshua, one of the 12 spies that went in. Not, not that Joshua. Joshua, the Joshua who served as high priest for the nation of Israel during the time when they had been carried off into captivity by the Babylonians and were beginning to be allowed to come back into the promised land. If you know that story, they began to come back and they began to rebuild the city. They began to rebuild the temple. That Joshua and Zerubbabel, who basically you could think of was as the governor of that time. Zerubbabel was the governor of that time period, and, and he was the political head. Joshua was the religious head. And between the two of them, they kept the people focused on God and moving forward in God's plan as the people came back into the land and as they planned to start rebuilding the temple. Now, that's nice, Clay, but how do you come to that conclusion that it's Joshua and Zerubbabel? When, when hardly any, by the way, this may not give you any confidence about my position, but in my library, I could not find a single commentator who held to my view. <laughs> Not one. And I got some good commentators in my, in my library. Kind of mad at those guys about this. Not a one that agrees with me on this position. And I, I, I finally, I went on the internet and start, started surfing for a while. And it took me a while, but I did finally find a few articles written by a couple of guys that hold to the position that I do. But it is clearly in the minority. How did I come to that conclusion? I believe that's what the text is telling us in verse 4. Now to us, verse 4 is a fairly insignificant verse. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, okay. Well, let's get on to the, to the water and to blood. Let's get on the fire shooting out of their mouth, killing them people, man. Let's get on to that part. It's whatever, verse 4. It's easy for us to pass over it. But to a Jew with an Old Testament background, verse 4 would not go unnoticed. John says, here's who the two witnesses are. I think that's what he's saying. Here's the two witnesses. Remember, verse 3 says, I'm granting authority to my two witnesses. And verse 4, he says, these are the, there's a definite article, the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. That's who the two witnesses are. The two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. I, I, don't, I don't have time to go into it all, but in Zechariah chapters 3 and 4, Zechariah tells the story of Zerubbabel and Joshua. And of the work that they did. And, and Zechariah chapter 3 and 4 clearly indicates that, that the work, that the, that the olive trees, start to say oak trees, the olive trees and the candle lampstands are symbolic of the work and the acts of Joshua and Zerubbabel. As a matter of fact, uh, Zechariah chapter 4 verse 14 says this. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones. Who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Notice the similarity between Zechariah 4.14 and Revelation 11.4. Now, real quick. Um, almost everybody, all, almost all commentators recognize that 11.4 is talking about Joshua and Zerubbabel. But most of them say that, that what, the, what the text is saying is that the two witnesses will have a ministry like Joshua and Zerubbabel. That's possible. They may be right. But those of you that have hung around cross-culture for a while know that I've ta taught you that one of the first and foremost um, 
tools for interpreting a text is to take the literal meaning of the text unless the context clearly tells you something differently. Unless the context clearly implies that it's symbolic or something else. Otherwise, you take the literal interpretation. And there's nothing in Revelation chapter 11, verse 4, that indicates that this is symbolic. He doesn't say that they, these are like the two olive trees. He says, these are the two olive trees. And you go back and read Zechariah chapter 3 and 4, you'll see the connection with Joshua and Zerubbabel. I may be right. I may be wrong. I don't think I win any special prize in heaven if I am right. And like I said at the beginning, nobody can, ha- can hold absolutely emphatically to their position. But people ask, and so we deal with it. Which then brings us, real quickly, let me try and wrap this up, which brings us to the third question. And the third question is this. And the third question is the one that's important. What will the two witnesses do? And the two, what the two witnesses do is basically the BP squared for Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. The BP squared, if you've been with us, you know, stands for the big picture biblical principle. The big picture biblical principle of Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 through 14, is the two witnesses will bring God's prophecy, use God's power, and accomplish God's purpose. That's what God deemed important for you and I to know from Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Who the witnesses are? Okay, yep, yeah, maybe this, maybe that. When they, yep, yeah, maybe now, maybe then. Maybe. But what they do is important. They will use God's power to, to substantiate their message, and they will proclaim the message for three and a half faithful years. And it's not hard to figure out, by the way, what the message is. It's the same message that, that the Old Testament saints gave. It's the same message that, that we proclaim today, that there is a need for us to repent, for people to repent and turn to God and trust in Him with our lives, to follow His path and not our own, to turn from our sin, to acknowledge our sin, to walk away from our sin. It's not hard to figure out what their message was for three and a half years. And they will proclaim it for three and a half faithful years. And, and the text is clear to say that nothing or no one can touch them during that time. By the way, it's a good word for us in there. What God has called you to do, he'll equip you to do. And nobody's going to stop you from doing it as long as God still wants you to do it. At the end of when they had finished, when, when they had finished the work God had for them, it says the, the one from the pit of the abyss rises up and comes against him, the beast that comes up out of the abyss. Again, again, I'm in the minority here too. Most people believe that this is referring to the Antichrist. But as I understand Scripture, the Antichrist is going to be a man. He's not going to come up out of the abyss. He's actually a man. So I believe it's a reference to Satan. Now, he may use the Antichrist, may use his forces, or whatever the case may be, but he will wage war against the two witnesses. They'll, they'll attack them, and Satan will kill them. And they will lie in the streets of the city that's referred to as in here is Babylon and is Egypt, which refers to just where they were and how far they had strayed from God. It's a reference to Jerusalem. And, and the reaction of the people gives you an idea of where the people are at this time. Again, can you see God's grace for three and a half years, these two witnesses faithfully proclaiming and apparently getting national attention, worldwide attention, because when they're killed, the text says every person on, around the world, people were seeing them. Now, for a long time, that was a hard thing for people to understand. Then along came something called CNN. It's no longer hard to understand why all over the world people could be at the same time seeing these two bodies laying in the street, which, by the way, also tells us that that worldwide that they could see and hear their message for three and a half years. And they are absolutely overjoyed at the death of these two. Shows you where their heart is. They, They make it like Christmas. They start exchanging gifts 
over the death of these two guys. Because the text says they have tormented the people who dwell on the earth. By the way, interesting study of that word dwell. Um, there's two words for the word dwell. This particular word that's used means, means fixed. And that's where these people were. Man, this is, this is what I want. I'm not interested in God. I'm not interested in the things of God. I'm not interested in following that God. The ones that dwell on the earth will be overjoyed. But they in for a surprise. Three and a half days later, they come back to life. Earthquake, 7,000 killed, I believe literal, just what it says. And as a result of that, as a result of these witnesses for three and a half years and these people hearing this, as a result of their death, as a result of their coming back to life, as a result of their calling up and it says the enemies, watch them go. Not a thing they can do about it. As a result of the earthquake, which happens in the same hour as they come back to life. That's not by accident. As a result of the death of 7,000, as a result of all of that, those apparently, I believe, Jews that are, that are still there at that point in absolute fear, recognize their mistake, recognize where they've been, and they suddenly give glory to God. It's a lot, I know. It's pouring out. And it's going to accelerate now with the bold judgments coming up. But with this from chapter 11 on, it, this thing, God is winding this thing up, folks. And I don't, I don't know what that means for you, but I hope that it means, man, my God is real. God loves me, and He's a gracious God, and He's certainly extending, but God... Judgment is coming. Like I said at the beginning, I hope you learn more as a result of this study, but far more important, I hope you care more as a result of this study. In the end, the exact timing of their ministry and exactly who they are is open for speculation. As Pastor Clay reminded us today, it may be fun to think about some of those things, but the important question is what will they do? As we've learned today, they will faithfully deliver God's message to those who need to hear it. They won't be warmly welcomed by the world, but their message and their actions will leave little doubt as to who is really in charge. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. It's Q&A time at uh, Cross Culture Church this morning. We are answering a question as we do each week that someone has turned in uh, regarding some area or, or interest in their life. What does the Bible have to say about some particular thing? Uh, the Q&A for today is this. What does the Bible say about relationships 
with the church, within the church. What does the Bible say about relationships within the church? Now, let me tell you, um, this question was a little long, so I kind of summarized as best I could what I thought that question was, was saying. This is one of those questions that, you know, um, there, there may be some, uh, some history in, in, this, in this question. It says, um, what does the Bible say about Christians who will hang out in their Christian clique, serve with their Christian clique, but won't get uh, involved with the rest of the church outside of their clique? <laughs> Maybe some history. Now, I thought that was a good question to, to deal with because I, I, this has been uh, something that's been, I've come across in my life from, from time to time. I grew up under a pastor, and, and I say grew up when I really surrendered my life to the Lord and began to grow in, uh, in Him. I, I grew up under a pastor who believed uh, as far as within, within those that served in ministry. Uh, he had a very strong position. He said, pastors can't have friends in the church, and he believed very strongly that. And, that, and you find a lot of older pastors that, that feel that way. Pastors can't have friends in the church because if you have friends, other people will get jealous and they'll say you're you're being partial and, and all that sort of thing. And so and so he didn't. He and his wife t- stayed totally separate from from everybody other than church, you know, wide events. And um, quite honestly, lived a pretty lonely life. I know his wife uh, did and that sort of thing. But uh, so, so it brings up that question. What does the Bible say about relationships within the church? Can, how should people react? Do, do, can we have, you know, friends perhaps that are closer to us than others? Or are we all, you know, how does this whole thing, this body thing work? Well, uh, there certainly there are a few principles. And I listed just a few, really, and, and just a scripture verse for each one of them uh, to consider uh, this morning. Here's a few things that we certainly know that, how, that ought to be involved within relationships within the body of, of Christ, certain things that should be them. Uh, one thing is that w- we ought to serve one another. There, there ought to be a desire to serve one another. Um, uh, John chapter 15, I think it is, uh, or chapter 13, now that, I, uh, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And if you know the context of that uh, story there in John 13, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, took the towel and basin and knelt down and washed their feet, which was unheard of for basically the guest of honor to do. It was usually assigned to the lowest servant in the house. And Jesus bends down and does this. And, and he basically said, he's giving them all. He says, what I do, you should do. You should serve one another. Certainly that's something that we ought to see uh, among the fellowship and among people within the church. Uh, another one, of course, we ought to love one another. We know that. Uh, another passage, well, actually still in John chapter 13, says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So this new commandment is that we love people the way God loves us. How much did God love us? Enough to die for us. So there's this idea of sacrifice, sacrificing myself and to love each other that much. And then Jesus adds to it. He says, as a matter of fact, by the way you love each other, and he's, he's referring to the body of Christ, the way that you have love for one another is actually how those outside of the body of Christ will recognize that you're a follower of me. Good. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so the serving one another is loving one another. There should be equality of one another. Uh, do not lie to each other. 
This Colossians 3, which I, I love that chapter. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off the old self with its practices and then put on the new self. Just a practical thing. Don't lie to each other. Um, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Mm. We could stop there a while, couldn't we? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So there's a lot there in that Colossians 3 passage. But the emphasis there is that, is that, there, there's, that there's, there's equality within the body of Christ. And that doesn't mean that there's not leadership within the body of Christ. That doesn't mean that there's not needs at times to, to, uh, to work in a person's life or go to a person, to a, someone we care about that, that's allowed some sin in their life. doesn't mean that you don't, don't deal with issues like that, but it means that no one person is any better than anybody else in this place. And then kind of connect it to that, there ought to be impartiality between uh, one another. In the book of James, James chapter 2, my brother's As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, well, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? There shouldn't be... uh, partiality. Uh, if, if you, it, I, I don't, you know, if you're a, a millionaire or a, a who wants to be a millionaire, you know, or, or, or whatever, it, it shouldn't make any difference within the body of Christ and how we treat each other. Now, having said that, let me just quickly kind of wrap this thing up. That doesn't mean that there aren't necessarily people that perhaps you in some way connect better with than other people in the church. Maybe you're around the same age. Maybe you have some interests that are more common. Maybe your, your children run in the same circles. Uh, you may have people within the body that you perhaps just connect with better, or maybe you do life group with them, and so you just hang out with them uh, more often, or, or that sort of thing. Um, but, it, it, but it doesn't... So it, I don't think it means that, that you can never... That everybody should be the same, and, and as far as not having special relationships. I don't, I don't see any problem. Jesus himself, you know, out of all the disciples that he had, he picked 12 to spend more time with than anybody else. And even within that 12, he selected what's known as the, the inner circle, that group of three, Peter, James, and John, where he spent even more time with than he did the 12. Did the other uh, nine get jealous perhaps from time? I don't, maybe they did. But Jesus saw the need to come alongside of these three men for whatever particular reason. I kind of summarize it this way. Here's my little ditty. Within the church, you may have some people to which you are closer, but you should never have anyone to which you are better. Should never treat anybody any better than you treat anybody else. You may be closer to some than to others, but all persons are equal in Christ and should be treated that way. That's Q&A for today.